Good afternoon. Thank you so much for tuning in to St. Andrew's Radio. You're listening to Eco-Activist Journeys, and my name is Leah. I'm a third-year sustainable development and international relations student at the University of St. Andrews, and today I'm joined in the studio by um, Felix Fitzroy, who's a professor emeritus of economics in the School of Economics and Finance at St. Andrews. And yes, last semester um, I, I took an... Um, environmental economics course in sustainable development and that's when I stumbled across his um, textbook an introduction to climate change economics and policy and I really really enjoyed reading it and yeah it inspired me in, in many ways so I thought it'd be really um, special to do a radio show with the co-author co himself and I'm very grateful that he could make it to come today um, yeah and especially because I feel like um, environmental economics is one of the most important and promising fields where I think we there are a lot of changes that um, can still be made and that are really vital for reducing carbon emissions and moving to a low-carbon world. So, yeah, I'm very excited for today's radio show. And, um, yes, if you're tuning in and want to ask any questions throughout the show, um, yeah, please log into the bus box if you wish and, um, yeah, post any questions that you might have. Um, yes, thank you, Felix, for joining us today, and it's an honor to have you in the studio. Um, would you mind starting off by telling us a bit more about um, about yourself and how and when you got interested in environmental economics, and then, yeah, why you think it's such an important topic? <clears throat> thank you, Leah. It's great to be here. I grew up in the country. I was always fascinated by nature. Um, my parents were environmentally active. So it was kind of natural for me to get into teaching environmental economics, although a lot of my research has been in other areas, such as labor economics. But I, for the last 10 years, I taught the environmental economics, which I introduced into the School of Economics in St. Andrews. And as Leah said, um, I, I have a textbook, gone through two editions. And of course, environmental economics is of overriding importance uh, these days because climate change is accelerating, um, it's threatening civilization. Yeah, so maybe you all can explain a little bit more how you think actually economy and ecology are interlinked because it's actually, I think it's it's quite good to look at the terms. Obviously, both have the the prefix eco in it. So, yeah, there's, a, there's an interesting interlink that I think. Yeah, well, uh, traditionally, economics has completely ignored the environment, um, although the theoretical foundations of incorporating the environment were laid a long time ago um, uh, with the, the idea of externalities. These are effects which are not intended when you uh, produce something. Uh, you don't want to produce pollution, but pollution happens, and um, the pollution has costs, but the costs uh, are incurred by other people, not the users of your product. You know, car drivers, they're exposed to pollution, but mainly from other car drivers, not from their own car. So uh, these 
externalities or negative externalities as we call them um, need to be costed and that's the fundamental idea behind environmental taxes or carbon taxes uh, so that people consider these externalities when they when they make and use uh, products in the uh, in in the normal way of things mm. yeah i think especially like you said obviously our economic scene and, and how we in, interact in terms of yeah in terms of economy in terms of money obviously we depend so much on the earth and on the earth's resources and yet um it's something that has been like environment especially within economics like the environmental aspect has been something that has been ignored for a long time but yeah why would you say to economists you know why do they need to pay closer attention to climate change um Well, climate change is probably the biggest problem yeah. uh, which civilizations have ever faced. Yeah. I mean, people are worried about a uh, virus um, pandemic, but if climate change continues unchecked, um, billions of people will die. Yeah. You know, civilization will come to an end, and the science gets more and more pessimistic. Um, with each new study. Yeah, and actually it's interesting from a health perspective um, as well because um, obviously yeah. with climate change, um, infectious diseases will just increase in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of weather patterns and more uh, just becoming a more greater breeding ground for diseases and for um, disasters. And I think we're already seeing so many more natural disasters. Um Yeah, I guess it's just difficult probably because it's such a complex problem um, that has a lot of different facets to it. So um, it's not a thing that can be solved through one through one route or one aspect. Um, however, I think what yeah what's what comes through a lot when we talk about um, economics and um, the environment um, is often the the current neoliberal system that is obviously based on consumption and based on exploitation. Um, but, yeah, I don't know, maybe you can explain about a bit more, like, what is currently wrong with in this neoliberal system and how can we maybe transform it so that it doesn't continue destroying and exploiting our Earth? Well, the, uh, the basic idea <coughs> of just relying more or less uh, exclusively on markets to allocate resources. Um, that's the fundamental <coughs> um, idea behind le neoliberal politics, um, often called market fundamentalism, and um, often combined with actually markets which are not free, but with massive subsidies for the biggest polluters. Mm. This is something um, most people don't realize, not only explicit subsidies for fossil fuels, uh, polluting industries, but the mere fact that the external costs, these negative costs of pollution, are not priced into products. Mm. This is a kind of explicit subsidy and um, the International Monetary Fund, which has for a long time been a 
<coughs> bastion of neoliberalism, they have estimated that these implicit subsidies amount to about 5% of global GDP. And, um, uh, you know, they are, according to, to basic economic, neoliberal economic theory even, there needs to be a tax on all kinds of emissions, carbon uh, emissions and others, <coughs> which... Um, yeah, which accounts for the... Account for these yeah. external negative costs. Yeah, because I think at the moment what's happening is obviously a lot being is put out, a lot of pressure of like that environmental pressure and the externalities, as you said, are being put onto the consumer and onto the general, onto the citizen rather than being being paid by by the polluter or yeah by whoever's emitting them um, so yeah but then there's I think there's still an important point to look at how how can we look at growth you know do you think growth because obviously that's really grind into the economic system in terms of um, yeah we're supposed to like an economy is supposed to grow in order to seem healthy but is growth a possibility in a low carbon economy would you say well, I think um, you have to distinguish between different kinds of growth. Um, obviously, the growth in the purely material growth, just consuming, using more and more stuff, um, bigger houses, bigger cars, um, more and more pollution, this kind of growth has to stop um, and indeed be, reviewed, uh, be uh, reversed and uh, sort of basic principle of the modern economy is that uh, intensive advertising creates, makes consumers unhappy. They think, to, they think they need new stuff. So they throw away the old model, buy new ones. This is incredibly wasteful of all kinds of resources. And the interesting thing is that most economists uh, and others don't even recognize is that a long time ago it was shown that economic growth in rich countries does not make people happier. In fact, the opposite has happened over the past 30, 40 years. Um, GDP has per head has roughly doubled in most industrial countries and survey measures of life satisfaction and happiness in the US, for example, show a decline yeah. in most people's life satisfaction and little in the way of increase in other countries either. So this kind of economic growth yeah. is strongly affected by uh, simply people keeping up with the Joneses or trying to get ahead of the Joneses, showing off with your new car or your new fashions. And then the, the other people catch up and you spent a lot of money, wasted a lot of resources, and at the end of the day you're no more yeah. Happy than happier than you, you were before. Yeah, it, I think it's, it's, it's interesting because obviously there's so many different <coughs> aspects that play into it in, in terms of changing our, our moral system as well, how we how we view and what we value in life in terms of uh, there's there's been a lot of advertisement and a lot of um, conceptualization in our society that in order to be happy you need certain products or you need certain a certain lifestyle you need certain um, 
yeah, a certain standard, a certain yeah, you need money basically, and and ultimately it it, it pays, puts so much yeah emphasis and um, on material items rather than on on other things, and that's probably also what's really wrong in terms of the whole growth um, perception because we don't see growth, we don't look at growth in terms of what like what is valuable to to us as us all as humans, but rather in terms of things like GDP, which obviously I think, yeah, is a very skewed measure of, of growth. Um, and yeah, yeah, maybe you can explain a bit more about that. You know, what, what really is the problem with GDP and why is it not an accurate measure for um, development? Well, uh, GDP, of course, just measures the market value of all goods which are bought and sold or equivalently the total of all monetary incomes. And um, as we said, over time, these increasing incomes in rich countries don't make people any happier. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at surveys at a given point in time and you ask people, you know, what is important in their lives, what contributes most to their happiness or life satisfaction, you find that income has a positive effect, but it's very small. It's less than the, than the major factors, which are health. Mm-hmm. Um, health is wealth. Health is, is wealth. <laughs> <laughs> and community. People, uh, what is essential for people is uh, we are social animals yeah. to relate to family and friends. Mm-hmm. And the, the tragedy with economic growth is that as everybody becomes more stressed, they have less and less time for interacting with other people. And again, there are survey measures of this community life and friendship. Uh, you know, they decline as rich countries get, get richer. Mm. So this is a fatal, uh, sort of vicious circle mm-hmm. uh, where people see the only alternative as, you know, not only keeping up with, but getting ahead of the Joneses, working even longer hours. Mm. And instead of taking some, you know, as productivity increases, we could take some of the benefits as more leisure. Mm -hmm. Now, that's what Denmark in particular has Mm. done. They have steadily reduced the standard working week. And Denmark and the other Nordic countries are typically top of the world rankings in life satisfaction and happiness because they have a much better work-life balance. Britain and the U.S. are typically (laughs) among the worst with a long hours culture. You know, the more interesting your job, the longer the hours you're expected to work. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think you almost expect it to do more as well. Like if you reach a certain level, if you have a certain... uh, position or something it's almost expected that you put in in more and and it's constantly yeah looking for what else can we do and um yeah having longer hours and longer working days and and, i mean i guess the problem is that there's so many complex issues in the world and, and there's a lot to do but i think if we don't have that balance in terms of of um yeah of life lifestyle and life satisfaction that can't balance with a healthy working environment and doing our best in our jobs um and yeah yeah i think 
that's a that's really that's a really important measure that a lot more attention needs to be paid for too. But yeah, what would you say? Like, what other measures are there that would be more suitable to measure economic growth and that look at our or yeah of development really? Well, um, there are other measures. The United Nations has a Human Development Index, which includes factors such as education. Mm -hmm. But these measures are typically very strongly influenced by GDP. Mm. One has to say that in poor countries where there uh, are real shortages for many people, um, some traditional economic growth is also important. Mm. But um, in rich countries, uh, the problem is the distribution. Um, most economic growth goes to benefit the top 1%, mm -hmm. and most of that goes to benefit the top 0.1%. Mm -hmm. And so there's, in a rich country like Britain, um, it's an incredible scandal that after 10 years of Tory austerity, 30% of children are growing up in poverty. Mm -hmm. Now, these children will be handicapped for the rest of their life simply through growing up in poverty, whatever efforts their parents, their teachers make. So, uh, and these people, because they are, they are so poor, they do need higher incomes. Mm. Um, and because conservative government's main objective is to reduce taxes on the rich, mm. which the Tories have done, which Trump has done in the U.S., and at the same time to pay for these cuts by reducing welfare. Mm -hmm. So they make, make the poorest people even worse off. And then more economic growth seems to be the only solution. But of course, if um, wealth and income were more uh, fairly distributed, the highest <coughs> earners are the biggest tax evaders and tax avoiders, you know, much of the world's wealth is in offshore tax havens, mm. which are actually encouraged by the British government mm. because many of them are in British protectorates. <clears throat> so a serious effort at redistribution would allow people to concentrate on the things which really improve quality of life. That's probably also why it's actually such a bad measure because it just doesn't measure the well-being of a country. You know, we're all looking for... oh how well is a country doing in terms of GDP growth, but often that GDP growth just falls back to the people who already have a lot of money and not the places that, can, can you, the people yeah. that need the money the most in terms of, so not development's not happening at the places where it's needed. Absolutely. And, um, I mean, in all advanced countries, there are now regular surveys of people's well-being, life satisfaction, happiness. They're all... Uh, they all give similar results. They correlate very closely with the observations of friends, for example. They correlate closely with health, one of the major factors, and um, social uh, relationships. <clears throat> so it would be much better to simply directly use the results of these surveys um, and mention GDP as a footnote. Yeah and um, emphasize reductions in working hours. Yeah. Now, there, is, there has been in recent years a lot of discussion of a four-day week, for example, and in <clears throat> there have been many trials 
um, where four-day weeks have actually increased productivity. Mm. Everybody's felt better, less stressed after a long weekend, and productivity hasn't suffered. So there's a huge backlog, a need to expand these ideas, these possibilities, and also um, to open up uh, part-time work for skilled and highly qualified people. Because in most countries, only a few professions, like doctors, for example, they really have opportunities to um, do part-time work. Mm. It's only in the Netherlands where every employee has the right to at least request a part-time contract. Mm. Now, this doesn't guarantee, but it's socially accepted and there's much more part-time work amongst highly qualified people who very often have a perfectly adequate income from a four-day week or a part-time job than there is in other countries. Um, yeah, I I also think it's, it's interesting that um, obviously the happiness indexes and health indexes are something that's been very ignored within economics in the past, but yeah, how would you say would that actually benefit the economic system if we were to pay close attention to those? Well, policy would um, concentrate on these, um, you know, on fostering the conditions that promote um, widespread, you know, life satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, there are, um, there's a whole raft of, of policies starting with redistribution. Mm -hmm. Um, Mental health, for example, is the biggest cause of misery Mm -hmm. in developed economies, uh, even more so than poverty. Um, But again, mental health is correlated with poverty and stress. Mm. Um, It's also something that's not focused on in workforces or in social security, not even really that much in university or within studies. No. It's just an increased stress, but no importance paid to how, yeah, how people yeah. are feeling. And, and the, the, you know, the, the standard medical education um, training largely neglects mental health. It's mm. um, the facilities in the NHS are grossly inadequate. Mm. And the problem is spilling over into younger and younger children, mm. you know, who are suffering. Um, and... Um, the the the, the, reaction, the the reaction has been totally inadequate, and all the, in fact, um, the last ten years of Tory government have gone in the opposite direction. They have cut numerous services related to health, mental health, counselling, um, and made the situation worse. And it, this hasn't even benefited uh, conventional economic growth because productivity output per hour worked has hardly increased in Britain over the past 10 years since the the Great Recession. Um, Wages for most people have stagnated and for many have actually declined. So, um, yeah, as I said, child poverty has increased and um, the environment has been neglected. Yeah. 
I I also think there's a, there's another book that I read um, last year that I was has a lot of interesting topics, especially around um, economics, which mentioned you know looking at at growth um, and, and economic growth because, like you said earlier. Um, some economic growth might might be needed in, in countries and in developing countries, um, but what um, it, he, the author of the book, uh, Mike Berners Lee, and the book's called "There's No Planet B," mentions was that um, we've looked at growth the wrong way because, <coughs> in the sense, if if you're a child, you grow up to become an adult, but then certain, at some point, you obviously he reached your height in in terms of growth, and you have to look for other ways to grow. And um, and as a society, we've looked at we sh- we should look more at like economic growth in that same way. Yes, we might need a certain amount of of growth to have a stable you know society, um, but then then we need to look at different terms of growth in terms of um, yeah in terms of what we in terms of ensuring that yeah the happiness and the well being I guess of a country and of its citizens. But yeah, what is your opinion of the concept of degrowth? <clears throat> well, um, um, as as we said earlier, the the steadily increasing production of material stuff um, obviously has to be rolled back because um, it's not only climate change, but all kinds of resources are getting scarcer and more. Uh, their cost will increase over time and by moving from a throwaway economy to a repair and recycle economy Sweden has now started to offer subsidies for repairing durable goods and that's a a very promising measure so that people would have the incentive to get all their stuff repaired have Mm. its life prolonged uh, instead of throwing it away, um, and this would release resources for investment in um, renewable energy, for example, in sustainable agriculture, uh, and and so on. Yeah, that also refers a little bit to the concept of circular economy, mm-hmm. with the terms of uh, um, yeah, looking at that things aren't just thrown away, but actually get. Like there's a life cycle to them, and especially that producers of certain products are also responsible for its disposal. And, and I think that's maybe a way in how the rec- whole recycling system has maybe been looked at in a wrong way for a long time because it's the past, like, yeah, the companies that produce maybe, let's say, plastic or certain, yeah, or other products as well are not responsible for the disposal, what happens to the product afterwards, and there's no guarantee that it will be recycled. Um, so it's just, yeah. That's absolutely right. Yes, there's a, there's a huge gap and a huge opportunity for policy. Um, on degrowth, um, I mean, the term is often used loosely, mm-hmm. and critics point out that <clears throat> GDP tends to decline during recessions when a lot of people are out of work. And, of course, that uh, has... Um, devastating effects on their well-being and of course that's something we want to avoid but the the key to avoiding these problems is often summarized under the term green new deal mm. where you know the state the government has to invest on a very large scale 
<clears throat> in um, sustainable transport, renewable energy. And this investment, um, going back to Keynesian economics from the 1930s and the New Deal in America, which created jobs to reduce the impact of the Great Depression, these measures will increase uh, employment and reduce poverty. It's often forgotten that Britain has low official unemployment, but a large number of people who are unemployed, self-employed with very low incomes or part-time employed at very low wages, wanting full-time jobs but unable to get them, and uh, the situation of all these people could be improved by the job-creating effects of a Green New Deal, including retrofitting older buildings uh, with modern insulation, district heating systems, which are much more efficient, and um, in which Britain has a very large deficit compared to the, the Nordic, the Scandinavian countries. Yeah, there's there's a lot to learn. It's, it's good to see also how, especially some of the countries with it, yeah, the Nordic countries are doing what they're doing in terms of economically um, and how, how we can maybe utilize economic tools to combat climate change, which we'll discuss further right now. But I think it'd be a good point to have a short music break. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll start with a song that Felix chose for us today, which is um, Long Black Veil by Rosanna Cash. Do you want to have any words on like, why you chose the song for today? Oh, it's hard to explain. It's one, one of those um, contributes to my subjective well-being. <laughs> that's good. We need to focus more on well-being measures, so that's good. And we'll listen to the song and then we'll come back to talk about yeah, economic tools um, to combat climate change. We'll dive right into the question, um, Yeah, how can we actually utilize, utilize economic tools to, to address climate change and, um, yeah maybe cause some positive change as well, because we've talked a lot about you know, what, what's wrong with, with the economic measures um, and what, how, they har- like how our current economy is harming um, yeah, our planet and our Earth and our way of life. But what can, how can we actually utilise them to, to create positive change? Well, <clears throat> the classic example is the carbon tax, mm. um, which... Everybody agrees would be a good idea, but the the politicians <laughs> don't want to annoy their main customers or vo- or rather voters. Um, a few years ago, there was a so-called um, fuel duty escalator, so the petrol price rose by a few percent mm-hmm. every year. This was stopped. Now there's some talk of reintroducing it. <clears throat> I don't know whether this will be done or not, but of course um, uh, other other kinds of fuel, coal is the most polluting. Now that's one area where Britain has done well and phased out coal in power generation in favour of natural gas. But of course a lot of imported goods to Britain are manufactured in countries like China, which Mm. depend heavily on very dirty Um, Mm. (laughs) coal-powered electricity. Um, I think that's been a big problem in general, especially for developed countries, that 
it might not seem like it's pollute, they're polluting as much anymore, but they're exporting a lot of their pollutions, mm -hmm. all their production chains to other countries, yeah. such as China, which then have to deal with the, the negative yeah, environmental externalities, um, which then might seem like they're not considered part of maybe the US or the UK economy really anymore, or their problem, even though they're partly creating the problem. So, Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, there's, um, there's also discussion of... of um, carbon taxes on imports. Um, this would be this is something <clears throat> most economists would agree is, is a good idea. Um, and, of course, um, there are a, a, another major source of um, environmental problems is modern agriculture, industrial agriculture. Pesticides are killing bees on which most of the world's uh, nutrition depends mm. and um, these products need to be highly taxed. Mm. There are economical alternatives, regenerative uh, eco-agriculture eco which has some start-up costs so an obvious economic measure is to subsidize farmers, mm. not to simply produce more and more as the common market agricultural policy has done <laughs> ever mm. since its inception, um, but to subsidize farmers to produce um, in an ecologically friendly manner. Mm. Um, yeah, and of course there's also a huge economic incentive actually to to implement these tools, even though like these economic tools to combat climate change, because even though there's a startup cost to many of them, um, and that like transition period of changing the way how things are currently working but like if you read about how much like actual like calc what calculations have been done in terms of what climate change would cost the world in terms of damage in terms of yeah food production is obviously it will affect every area of our life is like it's incredible i think there was like a calculation done that says that like, we would have this, it co would cost so much money that more money than we have currently on Earth to actually deal with with all of the effects of climate change, and I don't even know to you know what extent that was calculated in, in which degree terms, because obviously climate change is already happening. But in terms of yeah, the the more like the higher our increase in, in average global temperatures, the worse the impacts obviously globally. Um, but yeah, well, do, I know there's also been things set up, especially within the EU, which such as like the emissions trading um, scheme. What? Yeah, maybe you can explain a little bit of like the difference between like emission trading schemes and <coughs> taxes. <coughs> yeah, well, the the trading scheme means people who use fossil fuels would have to buy permits, mm. permissions to actually use a given quantity. So the the end result is exactly the same as with a carbon tax. Mm. So the, the price of fossil fuels is increased. However, the emissions trading is much more cumbersome and costly indeed to administer. Mm. You have to set up a whole new um, bureaucracy basically mm. and administrative monitoring scheme, whereas in we already have a, a value-added tax, yeah. uh, and it's very, very easy. Just we we have fuel duty, for example. It's very easy just to increase these. Um, 
uh, to appropriate levels. So most most economists uh, would would certainly say that a carbon tax is a much better idea than mm. trading. Yeah. And you know, trading, international trading has been suggested, but again, um, we are very far from having a globally unified carbon tax, and that wouldn't be appropriate either. So each country can, um, you know, go um, increase the tax at an appropriate uh, uh, to an appropriate level at an appropriate speed for its own <coughs> conditions. But of course, what needs to be done is to support countries like India, for example, which is still one of the world's biggest users of coal, still building coal-powered power stations, <clears throat> although India is an ideal country for solar energy. Mm. So the rest of the world should be subsidizing solar energy in India, for yeah. example. That would be one of the best ways of combating climate change. Mm. Um, Why do you think then so much like, attention or has been, or a lot of attention has been placed on creating such carbon like emissions trading schemes where i don't know for me it almost makes more sense to have like a carbon tax uh, well for a long time there has been a, an emissions trading scheme in in in, in um, the european union yeah um it, it has been a dismal failure mm, yeah um the price has usually been much too low to to discourage pollution um but There's a kind of, well, this is part of the neoliberal ideology. Mm. Market fundamentalism is an opposition to taxes. Mm. So taxation is a kind of a dirty word. Mm. And so there's this idea that if you talk about trading, this will be more yeah. appealing to sort of neoliberal ideology. And you could get, get around the problem like that. But in fact, um, it hasn't worked. Um, theoretically, it could work. You know, it could be equivalent to a tax, but it would, would be more costly to administer. Mm -hmm. China is reputedly considering a carbon trading scheme. Mm -hmm. I don't know how far they've got. Um, yeah, I mean, it's probably similar to the problem of a carbon tax as well, that is in many countries you still set way too low in terms of having a, a significant impact. And then, yeah, that problem of a carbon tax or taxes being seen as something negative where I think they they can be something that really if implemented correctly are socially uh beneficial uh I th I can't remember it might have been from 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 your text where actually we're reading about the um um yeah areas like like Switzerland obviously have implemented a carbon tax in a way that the money goes back to um, the society, goes back to citizens, goes back to households and other renewable energy. So in that way, it makes it a lot harder for... Uh, well, it benefits the society, and then it makes it a lot harder for future governments to actually, yeah, change change that. So. <coughs> that, that That's a, a, a very important point. Um, many, many of you will have read about the Yellow Vests protest in France where they tried to introduce... Um, a tax or a higher tax on petrol with no compensation to people. Yeah. Although, you know, experts had recommended this. And, of course, um, given the grotesquely unjust distribution of income and yeah. inequality, it's absolutely vital 
to not to see the carbon tax as a just as a way of extracting more money from people. Yeah. So an alternative terminology is a carbon dividend or tax and dividend where all where it's revenue neutral as we say so all the proceeds of the tax are returned to every citizen of a country on an equal basis per head Mm -hmm. so obviously um, now you know high income people have a much higher carbon footprint Mm -hmm. so they will be net losers the tax and dividend will redistribute from high incomes to the lower incomes who will typically get more back in the dividend than they pay extra in terms of the tax. So this is the, uh, is the principle which is necessary to, to get popular support. Yeah, I think that's a big thing that needs to be very crucially looked at when making environmental policy. So to not set it up for failure and for further, yeah, social um, divide between actually doing something about climate change. If you do things that are just negatively harming the people that are least actually affecting, yeah, at least causing climate change, but then have to pay the social price for for yeah for pollution and for things like that so having that and that's i think also why things like the fuel escalator price probably in the uk didn't work out because it wasn't you know it wasn't subsidized and reinvested back into the society so yeah. um exactly yes yeah. yes and uh, it seems such a simple and obvious idea but again politicians um are, are very slow to learn mm. <laughs> I think I, I generally think that carbon tax could make a massive impact in terms of what we're doing because it, on, a, on in a global way for climate change because it makes it it's it, it makes it less of a volunteering thing to do something for the environment and incorporates it more into everyday life and like you said the people that will uh, that are causing the least emissions will then automatically or have the lower carbon footprint will then automatically if it's a socially implemented in a socially just manner will automatically um, benefit from that and those the heavier polluters and the people with a bigger carbon footprint so it's actually like an incentive creates an incentive for people um, to yeah to to be carbon wise I guess but do you think obviously a big problem is that how if it's just in one country, how much of an effect does that have? And do you think something there is it's a possibility of setting something up like a global carbon tax? Well, um, of course, we need um, global efforts, um, but it's extremely difficult to yeah. to to get any kind of. Um, joint action globally and if one country sets an example by showing what can be done then this can um, encourage other countries to follow i think that's um that's the only the only way forward even looking at something like in within the eu because that's obviously a set of different yeah a set of countries i think that could really set a a global example of, of how things are being done and even in terms of, for example, when last week there was a decision of um, by the by the court to to not to block the um, the third um, runway for Heathrow Airport, that set a global 
global example in terms of actually being one of the first mm, rulings or decisions made that are in agreement with with the pa Paris with the Paris Climate Agreement, which is crazy to think about as well. But it, it did set a sort of global, <coughs> I think, precedent as well that it's becoming less and less acceptable. And then if one country is doing, it makes it a lot harder for other countries to do something to not do it, I think, because it's setting global norms. That's so. exactly right, yes, yes. I would um, add, however, that um, without denying the importance of carbon taxes and other environmental taxes, um, particularly in agriculture, these measures... Um, you know, if they'd been started 30 years ago when climate change was recognized as a serious problem, that would have been fine, but it's much too late now to rely exclusively on them. Yeah. And that's why we need um, what's often called a Green New Deal. Another way of describing it is something like mobilization for World War II. Um, that's the scale of effort that is required to get emissions down fast enough. I mean, many people simply don't realize that, you know, we need at least a 60% reduction in global emissions by 2030. Yeah. This target of 2050 net zero is really irrelevant. Yeah. Because if the, if the beginning is too slow, then you know, we're all fried <laughs> before, <laughs> before it. I, yeah, I find that usually frustrating as well because <coughs> everyone always talks around that, oh, it's politically not like possible to do it till then. Like we're having these goals for 2050 and 2045. And I'm like, and I think it's usually frustrating because we, like, if you look at the Paris Agreement and if you read through it, it very clearly says that we have to have a majority of our emissions have to be reduced by 2030. So, and also 2050 is still, for most politicians and people in power now, is still so far out that it's, uh, yeah, it, I think it's just not a good measure. And yes, long-term planning is important, but we really need to look at ways, how can we, how can we reduce that? Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, as, as, as you said before, um, the question shouldn't be how much will... Uh, will this policy cost? The question is the astronomical costs of not Do, yeah. <laughs> launching a, a uh, you know, dramatic investment into uh, renewable energy, energy saving, uh, which is equally important. And um, the, uh, particularly on the energy saving front, all the work that needs to be done retrofitting old buildings. This is very labor-intensive. This could uh, have a big effect on job creation. Mm. And, of course, um, this would indeed push up low, particularly low wages, which is all to the good, and all these people would be paying more taxes, and the, the whole government expenditure, at least in a few years' time, would pay for itself. Yeah. I think we really need to start um, seeing this not as a sacrifice, but as an opportunity to, to recreate the system because there are many things that are very unjust in our current economic system and that could be transformed for the better and rather than seeing you know, in the environmental aspect as a limitation or as a, 
ja, also negative to 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 the environment to the economic system mm. should really rather look at it how can it become a tool for positive change within the economic system yes and i mean um we haven't talked about explicitly about the health costs yeah but the latest estimates are that in britain every year about 65,000 people die prematurely from air pollution yeah now Uh, you know, most of this from vehicle exhausts um, in 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 urban traffic. Now, you know, this is not a long-term cost. This is a huge immediate mm. cost. Of course, And yeah. all the people who are chronically sick because of air pollution, uh, and those are the ones who are most likely to die prematurely, um, they cost the NHS, according to one estimate, 20 billion a year. It's probably an yeah. underestimate. Um, there's no way of properly pricing the, the human losses of premature death. Yeah. And all this could be avoided by relatively simple measures such as turning town centers into pedestrian areas. Mm. And this doesn't mean just a small center or a or a congestion charge like in central London. Mm. But that means turning most of the city into a pedestrian area mm. where public transport would move twice as fast as in congested roads. Um, obviously, public transport needs to be electrified in the long run, mm -hmm. but even in the short run, there would be a huge benefit. Cyclists would be encouraged. A city like Copenhagen, which has gone down this route for many years... Um, half all the urban trips in a two million city are by bike or public mm -hmm. transport. <clears throat> yeah, it's 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 a it's a huge opportunity, and and I think, yeah, I think there's there's a there's a lot to be done and a lot to be looked at, especially within looking at yeah, like you said, the health impact that that climate change is already having. I mean, I was reading if you start reading statistics on how much actually like. Like diesel car emissions, for example, if you're standing in a city and you're breathing in like at just a robot and you're breathing in the exhaust fumes, how many actually that it generally takes away like minutes of life of people mm. at the side, especially younger children and things like that. And I think what's been done is in the past it's not it's not been looked at enough from from that perspective. Those two statistics have not been put put together in mm. terms of you know what is the actual like health the well-being and the economic costs to society at the moment compared to the cost of implementing a new mm. policy or <laughs> implementing a new yeah economic measure but yeah what would you say to sort of end this off on a, on a positive note what would you say did you find like one of the most exciting things and the things that give you hope within the field of environmental economics Well, I guess one um, positive development is the dramatic decline in the cost of solar power and wind power. Um, the current government in Britain has ended the ban on onshore wind development, which is a, yeah. a good idea because <laughs> onshore wind is much more efficient than offshore, mm -hmm. cheaper to build. Um, these are positive developments, but um, on their own, they're just not enough. There needs to be massive public um, investment to exploit these um, these very efficient and 
increasingly cost-effective forms of energy. In many parts of the world now, solar energy is is cheaper than even gas or coal-powered energy. Yeah, hopefully, um, I'm still hopeful about the the fact that, you know, the university at some point will energy in terms of uh, the Kenny Wind Farm project going ahead. Um, hopefully, <laughs> there's pressure at the moment to to, re- to hopefully get the Ministry of Defence to re-engage with the, with the topic and to have a wind farm that could power the entire university on renewable <laughs> energy. And I mean, that, that leaves a legacy as well. But no, I really think there's a lot of economic potential in, in what we can do. Um, and there's a lot of change that, that can, ha- can happen if we, we weigh that with, you know, some of the effects that is already happen are already happening in the world um, in terms of health, uh, in terms of social injustices, and that can be transformed. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for everyone who tuned in. Thank you for Felix for joining uh, me for the show today and for answering all of the questions. It was yeah really exciting to have that discussion and really insightful. Um, the last song that I'm going to play today is um, called. Um, this Better Earth by um, Diana Washington. And it sounds like it's a bit, obviously, a sad song. And it is in a way, but it ends on a positive note in the sense that, you know, we can look out into the world and it can seem very, like, depressing at times. But I think if you if we really look at the things that, yeah, that we value and that can be changed and, um, yeah, there is something positive to look out for and it's important to look you know for the light and look for the positives and what we can actually change and how this whole climate um, emergency actually also is an opportunity to transform our society um, to something that works better and is more socially just and uh, yeah can ensure a future so yeah thank (laughs) thank you Leah Um, yeah, we'll end that for today. But um, yeah, have a wonderful weekend and um, thank you for tuning in.